Our text is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold than perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the lives of all of your saints over time. And especially now we thank you for Peter who penned these words uh, through the inspiration of your Holy Spirit. We pray, Father, that you would open our minds and uh, guide us as we reflect on this, that we would bring you glory and honor in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I'll uh, do something a little different for sermons anyway, or exhortations. I'll actually walk through the text. Um, I I tend to do that with my communion meditations, but with sermons I kind of go all over the place. But uh, this one, I think, just kind of lent itself to really a progressive uh, uh, exposition. So the first of our verses, verse 3, reads, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So what I would like you to do is look at these things that I'm pointing out and think of them in a time order. Uh, Because really time, when you have to parse a sentence, time often gets switched around. So the very first thing really here in accordance with time is God's mercy. And it's right in the middle of this sentence. So God's mercy is first, and then the very end of the sentence is next. It's Christ's death. So we have the mercy of God, the death of Christ, and then we have the resurrection of Christ, and then we have the birth of us who believe, our experiencing a living hope through the remainder of our lives, and all of that is to the praise of God. So it's all jumbled around. But I wanted to kind of show you, though, that this, there is an order here, and the order makes sense. We begin with God's mercy, We begin with Christ's death and his resurrection, which leads to our birth as Christ was raised from the dead. At that moment, we essentially are given life and that leads us to a life filled with hope and all of this is to the praise of God. Notice that there are three words here that speak of life. The words begotten, living, and resurrection. Each of these is about life. And I think this is what Peter wanted to start this whole epistle out with. He, wanted, he, he was the apostle of hope, he was called. And this is a hope in life. And yet, where do these words of life spring from? They spring from death. The death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. And death to us is something that we tend not to talk about day to day, week to week. I, I actually talked about it a few months ago when I talked on heaven and hell But normally, we don't talk too much about death. 
we have separated ourselves from it. I remember reading once, and it was a, a first-person narrative about a soldier who was in this horrific battle, and he was like the only guy living on this field. And I think it was, uh, I, I, I couldn't remember earlier, but I believe it's the one about Hamburger Hill, the, the one uh, uh, that uh, Mel Gibson started in here a few years back. But anyway, this fellow's uh, in the midst of all these dead men, and he said, if you're going to pretend to be dead on a battlefield, you have to keep your eyes open because all the other guys that are dead around you have their eyes open. You know, those of us maybe who have been around death in a hospital room or something like that, those people you typically have their eyes closed. But in battle, you die with your eyes open typically. And so this man had to feign death with his eyes open. And who of us ha hasn't watched a movie where, you know, this is spooky, right? I mean, dead people with their eyes open just ought not to be. Dead people need to close their eyes. That should be their last act. But uh, often other people have to close their eyes for them. So while this is weird, death is weird, um, resurrection is even more weird. We don't expect dead people to move, dead people. A comedian once was asked what he wanted people to say about him at his funeral. Look, he's moving. <laughs> That's what he wanted to hear at his funeral. He wanted to be alive. He didn't want to be dead in the casket. Uh, I... Uh, kind of witnessed death, and the fellow was, had his eyes open. Uh, it was an auto accident. I was going to work, and I was heading to my bus stop when a guy zoomed past me on a two-lane road, and I thought, what is this guy doing? And he about clipped my car. Well, then he went on to drive through a field and ran into a bunch of trees. So I drove over there, and he was convulsing. And uh, he was a big guy. He was probably 240 pounds, maybe 6'2". He was all strapped into his seat. And I didn't have a cell phone at the time, so I ran down to my bus stop, grabbed a cell phone, called 911, came back up there to direct the people in. But I'm watching this fellow while I'm waiting, and he's still convulsing. And I'm just freaked out. I mean, his eyes are open. He had frothed at the mouth. And I didn't touch him. I mean, honestly, I was scared to death. I could have, I should have got that seatbelt out of him, dragged him as best I could out of his car and tried to resuscitate him. You know, I mean, I kind of know that's the basics, but I was just freaked out. I mean, it's just when you're not around death, this is something you have to be trained for, I think. And uh, afterwards, people at the bus stop, I didn't, I didn't really tell them about it, but I told them, they, they asked, of course, that afternoon, because I missed my bus, but they asked that afternoon, uh, what happened? I said, well, the fellow was dead. I said, you know, I waited there for 20 minutes while they tried to resuscitate him and nothing happened. And uh, well, you did your best. And I just thought to myself, <laughs> I didn't do anywhere close to my best. I was a coward. And that fellow really could have been revived, perhaps, if I had not been a coward. But I was a coward. And so death, as abnormal as it is, and yet as, as common as it is in our culture, is nothing compared to resurrection, resurrection to life. How many of us have seen a movie uh, like E.T. or Starman, or we just watched one actually last week called CJ7, where some, typically it's an alien, uh, can produce life? You know, touch a dead body and then the dead body springs to life. You know, for any movie we've seen like that, we've seen a dozen where that creature that comes back to life starts eating people. So we don't want to see them come back to life. So, I mean, this is just weird stuff we're talking about. Resurrection is weird. And uh, I think we need to acknowledge that because resurrection is kind of weird in our society. It's common for Christians to think of resurrection, but it's always in the context of a nice, tidy you know, Christ was dead and in the tomb for a couple of days and then he came back to life. Uh, 
But uh, because it's weird, uh, we live in a culture that doesn't really want to hear about it. And even now the Christian church is embracing a hands-off approach, really, to death. Uh, don't want to talk about blood. The Christian church doesn't want to talk about blood, death, and perhaps even resurrection in Christ. Because all of this is somewhat offensive to our sensibilities. But resurrection is absolutely essential to Christianity. If there's one word that really can summarize Christianity, it's resurrection. Nothing else. No other one word really symbolizes all that Christianity is about. Sacrifice, maybe, but there's plenty of other religions that could talk about sacrifice. And so that's not it. It must be resurrection. We must talk about life coming from death. Now, I want to focus on a phrase that's in the middle of this text, living hope. Because they, they each kind of, as you read a text, they all kind of cling together through various words. And what we're actually going to talk about is where this living hope leads us. And I'll read verse 4. Living hope leads us to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Living hope leads to an inheritance. That's what we have to look forward to. And then there are three features given. Incorruptible, undefiled, does not fade away. And then it's also given the location and the recipient. Location is heaven, recipient is us, is you. This inheritance is reserved in heaven for you. It awaits us. What else awaits us? Uh, there's a book out. I haven't really even bothered to read uh, much about it, but it's like the seven people that are going to be waiting for you in heaven or something like that. And I, I don't know what it's about, but it kind of made me think about this context. What will we be uh, getting into when we get into heaven? In other words, what is waiting there for us? Inheritance. We're told that right here and all throughout Scripture. There's an inheritance awaiting us. We are all, all true believers are uh, inheritors of the estate of Christ, which is kind of bizarre, isn't it? God has given that to Christ and Christ died and was resurrected and yet he has bequeathed to us as a result of his death and resurrection. He has bequeathed to us property. He has bequeathed to us an inheritance. Now, it's true that uh, both inheritance and reward are spoken of in Scripture as relating to God, but not exclusively. I believe there is an inheritance that's spoken of as uh, property as well as the relational aspects that we'll have with God. So all of us have an inheritance awaiting us in heaven that, that arrive there. There are two other things that await us. Uh, one is what Christ told us to lay up there, and that is treasure. We are to lay up our treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not corrupt. So to the degree that we substitute earthly treasure with our heavenly treasure, that's really the degree to which we will not find the treasure we seek when we uh, get to heaven. It's down here. It was lost. You temporarily set your heart on it down here and now it's gone. And I believe there's a third thing. There's a reward. And so there are three things really that are spoken of as being waiting for us there. It's uh, our inheritance, a reward, and this treasure that we lay aside. All of that's there. Now, I think some people think maybe I'm being too materialistic about heaven, you know, especially after having talked about it before. Um, but I don't really think so. I think we live in a time in this culture and in this world where the, where the property is accumulating at a massive uh, speed and rate. Uh, we live at a time of great wealth. And the Tenth Commandment is being broken 
constantly. I mean, people hate the Tenth Commandment. The Tenth Commandment says, do not covet. And yet that's all I see when I read the news articles. I'll read a news article about someone that's lost their wealth through this uh, guy in the Ponzi scheme, Madoff. And uh, it'll say how they were victimized and how I had to do this, that, or the other thing. And half of the comments are, serves you right, you wealthy, you know, you should have been given that money away. Uh, we live at a very, very weird time, a very uh, different time than we've ever lived at, I think. Now, I'm not saying that covetousness has not always been prevalent in our societies, but I'm just saying that the, the benefits from being covetous are now much greater than they have ever been. And so there's a lot there for the taking. And we live at a time where our government is rapidly trying to take that away and give it to other people, breaking the Tenth Commandment. We no longer live in a Christian nation. We live in a nation that is violating the Tenth Commandment daily. And it's up to us to fight against that, to prove that this is a sin, prove that this is wrong. But anyway, so maybe I am too capitalistic, but uh, I don't think so, honestly. I think, I think the Bible is very capitalistic. So there are three things that are spoken of concerning this treasure that are permanent, and I mentioned them earlier incorruptible, undefiled, does not fade away. They kind of can relate in a way, and so I want to discriminate between them. First, uh, this uh, incorruptible, incorruptible and undefiled seem similar to one another, but I want to give you a different definition for incorruptible. Imperishable. And so imperishable is a little different. It, it's, that it's not subject to death or uh, destruction. No fire or flood will remove it from our grasp. It's there. It's safe. God has set it aside for you. Undefiled. It can't be polluted or decaying. Uh, you know, we live in a world where all of that happens. We must tend to things on this earth. If not, it will decay. And yet, nothing in heaven is like that. Nothing in heaven will decay. Uh, God is, is, has designed heaven such that that is not the case. And the last one is unfading. Here on earth, beauty fades. All of our beauty fades, even if we were once beautiful, which, you know, m most of us aren't, honestly, you know. Very few things are beautiful as we deem beauty. But even that which is beautiful fades away. And so that is where, if we set our hopes on that, if we set our uh, hearts on that, it just fades away. And uh, when you look at celebrities, it's just so much a... a, a, a a worship of skin, really. Uh, a lot of the modern celebrity movement is all about a worshiping of the skin um, and in various forms. And, and then old celebrities really just fade away as they become less and less beautiful. They're less and less interest to people. And that's a sad thing. And that ought not be so with us Christians. Us Christians really got, have to look further than the skin. And uh, in heaven, though, beauty will not fade. Uh, Isaiah 40 reads, you know, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever and heaven will stand forever. The beauty of it, the enjoyment of it, all of this, not fading. Time wears away on this earth, even silver and gold, but it will not wear away anything that God has protected in heaven. Uh, and, and this might be kind of silly, but uh, as I was reflecting on this text, I got to thinking about these storage units that we use on the earth. And uh, I read some articles, and with this significant downturn in the economy, some people are going to make a lot of money on storage units because people are going to stop paying on them, and then they're going to auction the goods off. And I, I am, uh, have, to, have to apologize to the crew for bringing up this illustration because they had a storage unit auctioned off years ago in error. 
because uh, it got mixed up with someone else that wasn't paying their bills, and I know it still hurts them, so I apologize to the Kruzis for bringing this illustration up, but it's just too good to pass up. Um, one man found $44,000 in a storage unit that he auctioned off, purchased it for probably $250, $300. Unfortunately, every bill had the same serial number, so he didn't get any of that money. But uh, there are all these wonderful success stories, you know, where people, one guy found a brand new Goldwing motorcycle buried in the back of a storage unit. You know, bought it for 300 bucks. It was all covered with a blanket, and that's his. Um, but uh, these storage units are being lost because these people can no longer pay the bill to maintain it monthly. And then through whatever uh, ramifications of this, they couldn't get back. They couldn't even get the money to go back and pay their back uh, storage fees and then cart their stuff away. They had no place to put it or, you know, the, the uh, people that ran the storage place put a lock on it. And now it's not your stuff. You can't get it until you pay the man his, you know, $300 fee or whatever. And they don't even have that. And so all their stuff gets auctioned off. But uh, God essentially has storage units for all of us awaiting us in heaven. This says it is reserved in heaven for you. The inheritance, unlike an earthly inheritance, this inheritance has already been set aside. It was set aside when God made the world. He's set aside our inheritances, and it is reserved in heaven for you. Every individual that he introduces into heaven, he'll say, I set this aside for you before time began even. And yet, when we think about that, don't think about it just from the fact that it's stuff. Let me give you an illustration that I think can kind of get you beyond thinking of it as stuff. Um, in the movie Santa Claus, the first one, there's this scene where he goes to this uh, high school reunion, and it's really, really boring. And nobody's having fun, and everybody's just standing around. And yet him being Santa Claus, he knows what is the heart's desire of all these people. And so he goes, does his Santa stuff, and he comes back with this bag, and he's got this bag of all these toys that all these adults, now that are like 40 years old, wanted when they were children that they never got. And they're all behaving like kids, and they're all happy and having fun. Now, you know, forget about the, you know, the sentimental aspect which they wanted to convey. Just think about it from the fact that someone knew their hearts that well, that they could provide them exactly what would please them, exactly what would give them great joy. That's our God. Our God knows that. He made us, and he's made us for this purpose. And when he brings us into his presence, if, as if that itself won't be enough, God will give us our heart's desire. He's made us to be material beings, and he will give us material that he has uh, not want, it, it will not be material that will uh, dis, cause a disaffection from him. It will cause us to love him all the more because he knows us, he understands us. He is our God. So, that's what I want you to see. That's the stuff, that's the inheritance, the property that God has set aside for you. No one else on earth would know what that is. I don't care how well you know your husband or wife. I don't care, care how well you know your kids. This is something only you and God know. You might not even know. The Bible tells us that we really have to dig to get to the desires in our heart. We don't know what they are. God needs to reveal them as we are faithful to him. And only then will he reveal our true heart's desire to ourselves. We don't even know what to seek on this earth. We are confused oftentimes. And so I just want to mention that uh, as we move on to verse 5, don't forget about that. God has made us material people. We live in a material world and we will live in a material heaven. And he wants us to think like that.
Verse 5, you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. We are kept by the power of God through faith. Faith, in the seven verses I've selected, faith is mentioned three times. And each time there's a different function that faith performs. And so I'll bring them out one at a time as we hit the text. This is the first occurrence of faith and this is the first function of faith. It keeps us. By the power of God, it keeps us. This word kept can be translated guard or defend. And that's what God does in our lives through the power of faith. We are kept. The same word is used in Philippians 4, verses 6 to 7. And let me read it. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Again, it's the same word. And so in Philippians, what I just read, it is the peace of God that guards us. Here in 1 Peter, it's the power of God through faith that guards us. But both of them are guarding us. The peace of God, the power of God through faith. Um, In 1901, uh, William McKinley had just been assassinated. And... I guess we got tired of having presidents assassinated, and so we uh, gave duties to the Secret Service to protect them. So at that time, we passed a law that the Secret Service would protect the immediate families of every president, every president-elect, and every former president for the rest of their lives. And so that law remained on the books until 1997. And if you remember, during that period of time, at the, uh, in late 1993, there were five presidential families being guarded. There was uh, Nixon, Carter, Reagan, the first Bush, and Clinton. All of those, because President Clinton at that point was the president-elect. And so all of these families were being guarded. And yet, everybody started complaining about how much this was costing. And uh, they passed a law in 1997 that said, okay, now from now on it's only 10 years. But now, if you remember, this came back up again after 9-11. Because they're thinking, well, you know, maybe 10 years isn't long enough. Because really, I mean, do we really want a former president, you know, getting taken by some, you know, uh, uh, militant group over in Syria or something and then have his head decapitated or something on the news for all to see? No, we don't want that. So now they're talking about reviving this law, but they haven't yet. And it's been six, seven years, eight years. But uh, we have lifetime protection. We have this a secret service agent that's providing protection for us. And it's the faith. It's the Holy Spirit at work through the power of our faith, protecting us, keeping us, guarding us. All of these things. And this is a wonderful thing. And now we want to get to this last phrase, ready to be revealed. This will be brought up twice. We are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. What is ready to be revealed? Read this. Let me read this again and you think about that question. What is ready to be revealed? Who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. It is the most recent thing mentioned. It is salvation. It is our salvation that is ready to be revealed. Our salvation is true now, but it's concealed. People don't understand the benefit of our salvation right now. If you talk to the average unbeliever and you say, I'm saved, 
they say, congratulations for you. But they don't see any benefit of it. They live lives of peace and joy and, and uh, comfort, just like you do. And so they see no value in what you're trying to sell them. They see no value in what you're saying. When will they see the value? When they're standing before Christ in the hereafter. And they're being separated from the people that had been saved. Then they'll see the value of the salvation that they spurned here on earth. But here on earth they don't see it. Asaph, the writer of Psalm 73, was saying, you know, my feet had almost slipped. I just didn't see the benefit. Why am I doing this? Until I went to the sanctuary of God. And then I could see that's what separates. The reality of God is what separates belief and unbelief. So the value of salvation will be demonstrated when Christ is revealed at the end of time. Verse 6. In this salvation you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. We go on to a different thought now. And so now we're moving from this promise of the future to the here and now. So Paul or Peter has told us all these wonderful things about heaven, but yet now he's coming back down to earth. And he's saying, I realize that I have to talk about this. But note how he says it. First, various trials. You know, we have been grieved by various trials. They are not brought upon us due to our sin. That's the first thing we need to understand. Um, a trial that I might face that is spoken of here isn't just me having to be cold while I'm pumping gas into my car. You know, that's not a trial we're speaking of here. It, it, it's just, you know, these trials are for our faith. These trials are the testings that we often fail in. And so with those failings of those trials, we have not laid up treasure in heaven. We have not glorified our, our Savior Christ. It is only in the trials that we overcome in that that's taking place. And so these trials are things that separate us from unbelievers. So all of the things that are difficult on this earth that you go through are really not what's spoken of here. It's only those things related to your faith that you're being challenged with. And only you really know what those are. Oftentimes they're occurring within you. They're not something visible to the rest of us. They're in you. And you are succeeding or failing daily, just as I am. And yet it's these things that God is doing that's at work in us. Um, the mistake that Job's three friends made was what? to assume that the trials that were brought upon him were due to his sin. But they weren't. They were trials for Job's benefit. Even the loss of all of his wealth, the loss of all ten of his children, all of these things were brought upon him, not by his sin, but by his faithfulness of all things. Right? Who brought him up? Did Satan bring up Job when he came in before God? No. God brought him up. Have you seen my servant Job? God is bragging on Job. And it then costs Job his family, but all for the glory of God. So are we willing to admit the truth of that? Are we willing to admit that the trials we face in our faith, we face in our faith are for the glory of God? All of these things that we succeed and fail in, we must want to succeed. It isn't like we're earning our way to heaven. It's not bad. But we are glorifying our Father in heaven. And that's what we want to do. So, there are three things that Peter says about the trials that I think are very, very enlightening. First, they last only a little while. Now, a little while might be 70 years. 
but compared to our time in heaven, it's a little while. You know, Peter knows this. He, that's exactly what he's saying. He's contrasting all of what he has just shown you a picture of with the little while that we are here on this earth. The trials we face are not arbitrary. If need be is in the text. Rejoice greatly, though now for a little while, if need be. So the trials are not brought upon us by a capricious God. God is bringing these trials into our lives because he needs to bring these trials into our lives. They're required. Matthew Henry said, These troubles that lie heavy never come upon us, but when we have need and never stay any longer, then needs must. And note that the trials merely grieve us. They don't destroy us. They don't condemn us. They don't conquer our faith. They grieve us. They grieve our faith. And the trials are not to be compared to our future reward. All of our trials, regardless of how painful they are in earthly terms, are nothing to be compared with what awaits us in heaven. So we, grie- we are grieved for a little while by God's plan, and then we go to heaven. Paul in Romans 8.18 said, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Note what he said there. The glory would be revealed in us. And I'll get to that more in a bit. But there's one thing I want to comment on here before we go on, and that is greatly rejoice. Uh, Peter was an apostle of rejoicing. He mentions joy a lot. And rejoicing in our salvation is the only means of drowning out the sorrows of this life. We must rejoice in our salvation. Uh, the ratio between the joy of our salvation and the, the grief that we experience through our trials must be great. If it's not, if it's going like this, then you're getting turned upside down. That's not what God intends for you. And if you do not have joy, the joy in your life, then there's something wrong. And it's not on God's end. God's doing what he is having to do, but it's on our end. We are not responding correctly. If you're a believer and you lack joy, it is not because God took it away. It's because you gave it away. You cast it away. Those games, I think I've used this illustration a few years back, but those, those adventure games where you can only carry along so much stuff in the adventure, you have to always be sorting through what you have. Well, if you're holding a whole bunch of bitterness in your hands, a whole bunch of grief in your heart, then there's no room for joy. You're not going to set this down to fill your heart with joy. It's just not worth it to you. You want to hang on to something that has no value for some reason that's unnatural to a Christian. So you must toss this stuff away in order to be able to truly accept God's joy. Matthew Henry said, a good Christian's condition is never so bad, but he has great reason still to bless God. As a sinner has always reason to mourn, notwithstanding his present prosperity. Now, the, the, the unchristian isn't mourning. That's what he should be doing if he only knew the truth. But, so good people, and he means Christians. I like how Matthew Henry kind of contrasts good Christians. He just calls them good people. Good people in the midst of their manifold difficulties have reason still to rejoice and bless God. Um, the degree of the grief, the earthly grief you're experiencing, really indicates the degree to which you have to dig through that to get to the joy of God. It means it's going to be harder for you than for someone else. That's what it means. It's still there. God's joy is still there. You just have to get to it. 
You have to set aside this grief, get through it in order to get to that joy. And that means probably daily because you're going through that grief daily. So you have to do that daily. That means that you're going to have to spend an hour or, or at least 30 minutes or something like this. It doesn't mean you have to spend that long. But if you're that far away from God through holding on to this bitterness, it's going to take you that long because you've built up this, this uh, shell, this hard ground around you, and it has to get broken up. Now, Peter in verse 7 shares the reasons for the trials we sometimes face. That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, I pointed out earlier that we had three references to faith. Here's the second. In verse 5, faith was introduced and it was our defender. It was keeping us. It was guarding us. The power of God through faith was guarding us. Here, our faith is a tool that God uses to prepare us to be praised and honored and glorified with him when we enter into heaven. These are things not that we are doing for Christ, although that's true, but here Peter's specifically talking about the things that will actually occur with us. We will be praised. We will be honored. We will be glorified. And so this is a beautiful illustration again of the fact that we're in this, you know. It's, yes, it's all about Christ. I mean, none of us compare to Christ, but yet he brings us along with him. He lets us share in all of his benefits. Only real gold survives the flames of the purification process. Only real faith survives the flames of the trials that we face. And so the purpose is the same. The purpose of the burning of the gold is to burn away the dross. The purpose of the trials that we face is to burn away all that pretends to faith. It might be good habits. It might be just a good upbringing. All of those things should get, if you're a believer, they will get burned away over time, left with real faith, because that's the only thing that will satisfy. None of those other things will get you through hard, the hard times that God will bring you through in order to make sure that the faith that you have is genuine. Only real faith survives the trials, and it leads us to this praise, honor, and glory. And then to uh, Matthew Henry again, you know, I mean, I, I've read a lot of commentaries, but Matthew Henry gives the real good quotes. Um, he, he, has, he writes this, The faith of good people is tried, that they themselves may have the comfort of it. And so, in other words, I'm comforted by the faith that remains. God gets the glory of it, and so the faith that is produced in me is to the glory of God, and everyone else benefits from it. So as our individual faith grows, we are benefited, God is glorified, and our friends are benefited. And so that's the purpose behind this. And now I kind of come to this uh, picture uh, that I put in there. Well, let me first mention one thing. Uh, this is, again, the second time that Peter refers to the revelation at the end of time, the revelation of Jesus Christ. This isn't about, uh, the, this is spoken of in a kind of a passive sense. This isn't Jesus Christ revealing something. This is Jesus Christ being revealed in heaven. And again, Peter brought this up once before and he brings it up now again. Faith is essential to live in the Christian life. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please God. He who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Attempting to serve God without faith leads you nowhere. 
You get nowhere without true faith. Only true faith fuels the tank of this living hope that we are living in. Now, we come to these views of life, and I think it's appropriate to introduce it here. There is this secular view of life, and these, this diagram is showing from the foundation up. So a secular view of life begins with the senses. You know, I mean, that's the scientist in all of us. That's the scientist that was in Eve when she was being wooed away by Satan to test what God had said, to test the apple. That was the scientist in her. And so this scientist appeals to the senses. We've got these five senses. God gave them to, to him for a reason, but he also gave them to us as a test. Can we trust him despite our senses? So really the secular view of life is the senses, and then we have what can be rationally built upon the senses, and then we have faith beyond that, and the reason I put it in dashes is that that's the weaker that's the weaker thing. The faith is really dependent on everything else. Whatever gets placed above reason has to be consistent with the two uh, pieces of the foundation that were below it. The Christian view of life is topsy-turvy from that. We must begin with faith. And what is the faith in? Ultimately, for the individual Christian, what must our faith be in? What is the tangible tool God has given us to strengthen our faith? It's his word. We do have the relationship of the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit will use his word to strengthen our faith. And so we must depend upon God's word. We cannot do it by disparaging God's word, by trying to tell other people that God's word is not to be trusted, that, is, that it is not trustworthy. That, yeah, yeah, it tends, contains good things, but you know, we know it's really all about the Holy Spirit. No, it's about God's word. And then upon faith is reason, and upon reason is sense. And also, in a way, I think that the reason and sense for the Christian, this is the proper order. I think the sense must be the last one for us because there are aspects of the Bible that we pull out in faith that we must reason upon and draw conclusions from that are inconsistent with our physical senses. And that's fine. We must build upon faith, reason, and senses. So now... We ended this sentence with Jesus Christ at the revelation of Jesus Christ and the next verse 8 goes on to talk more about Jesus. Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. We all love Jesus having never seen him. And the Jews that uh, Peter is writing to are in the same boat as us. Most of them never saw Jesus. These people had been dispersed because of the persecution. They had been dispersed um, uh, uh, early on with the, uh, the uh, Romans uh, coming into Jerusalem and basically uh, taking over and beginning to rouse the church. First it began with, within the uh, Juda Judaistic religion itself, but then it expanded to the Roman government. And these people have been spread all over. And actually the first verse tells you he's writing all over the place to the dispersion. And uh, yet, for people that lived so soon after Christ, they're really very little different from us. You know? So it's 19 years, 1900 years to us, but you know, it's like 20 or 30 to them. But still, we're in the same boat. We have to go on faith. Joy inexpressible. Again, he brings up rejoice. And he says, rejoice with joy inexpressible. And my question to you, to have you ask yourself, 
is, have you ever had inexpressible joy? Not related to, you know, a kid's birthday or something like that, you know? I mean, because we that have kids know how precious those moments can be. But I'm talking about with God. Has God ever given you a moment of inexpressible joy? It should be your desire to have that. It should be your goal in life to uh, be as close to that as you can be. Um, And if you have never experienced uh, inexpressible joy, if you've never had to stop reading the Word because the tears cover your eyes, you just can't see anymore, Um, if you've not had to do that, why not? You know, we really should love God's Word. God's Word should touch us. And if it's not, there's something wrong with that foundation, perhaps. This foundation is predicated on faith in God's Word. And if we don't get anything out of God's Word that draws us closer to Himself, then we're not believers. It's that simple. God's Word should draw you to Himself. And if it doesn't, you need to pursue Him. I'm not saying that you have to become a blubbering idiot like I do sometimes up here. You know, thankfully, you don't have to be up here and become a blubbering idiot at times. But uh, yet, does God have your heart in his hands? Have you trusted him with your heart? You must. There are reasons why this might not have occurred. You might be young. You might not really have experienced the depth of your salvation yet. Because you, I think, need to know some things. You need to study the word in order to really understand this. And you might be older and these feelings might have been a long time ago. You might be drifting away from God. But the key is you must seek God like he intends himself to be sought by us. You must. This is not easy stuff. This is not something that you can just, you know, shut off the movie and then boom, your inexpressible joy. No, that isn't how it works, you know. Um, I'm not saying it takes you forever, but I'm telling you it takes your focus. If you're going to go visit a really, really good friend, you need to focus on that, right? You need to think about that. What did I talk about my, with my friend about last time? Where are we going in this relationship? That's, that's what God wants us to do with him. It's a relationship. He's not just there as like our you know, bellhop in the sky that we can just cast all of our requests to. No, it's not like that. He wants a relationship with us. The last, uh, one of the last words here says, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible. And yet the connection of this believing is receiving, which is the first word of the, the ninth verse. And so I want to bring them up here. Believing, blah, 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 receiving. So what are we believing? What are we receiving? It's, it's the essence of Christianity again. We are believing in Christ and his sacrifice. We are receiving the salvation of our souls. That's exactly what's uh, being taught, spoken of here. And in belief, we surrender our opposition to God. We are won over by him. We are made his prisoner. And he has a wonderful prison awaiting us in heaven. Uh, Because we are his slaves, we are his servants. Uh, He created us and he has bought us. He has redeemed us at a horrible price. And so he has us. We are his. And the last verse, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The title of this uh, text is, End of your faith. The title of this message is End of Your Faith. The salvation of your souls. So the end of our faith is the salvation of our souls. We have been saved, yet that salvation, as I spoke of earlier, remains to be seen. It remains to be experienced. We experience a piece of it here. We have been justified. We have begun the process of sanctification, but glorification awaits us. 
And everybody can always find fault with our sanctification, right? And we do. We find fault with one another's sanctification. We find fault with our own sanctification. Why doesn't God do this, that, and the other real fast for me? Well, that's not how he works, sorry. He's not that, you know, like I said, he's not that bellhop that's there to ring the bell and give you what you want. But salvation then is multifaceted. Salvation is justification, sanctification, glorification. And the fact that you have been justified before God, only you know. The fact that you are being sanctified is slow. And so you can't convince an unbeliever, I'm a believer and I've been saved. Well, they don't frankly see much of a difference, you know. And and they can attribute any difference in your behavior to just whatever fad you're into now. They can do the same things. It's kind of like back in Moses' day when he's demonstrating miracles to uh, the Pharaoh and the Pharaoh gets his wise men to do the same things. There can be ways in which things are faked. So the Holy Spirit is an earnest deposit within our hearts, though, against the day that we will be glorified. And so we know, as individuals, we know we are saved. I tell people, no one else can know that. I'm 100% sure I'm a Christian. I'm 99% sure you're a Christian. You know, that's the way it works. But only God knows. And yet he has given us that assurance through his Holy Spirit. Uh, Here we have the third function of faith. We talked about the first two. Faith is a shield to defend us and to carry us through this living hope of this world. Uh, The second, the faith is a tool that God uses to produce in us things that will reveal in us praise, glory, and honor in heaven. And third, faith results, the end of faith, is salvation of our immortal souls. God uses that a tool to that end. So the end of your faith can be thought of as a goal. Just as the question, what is the chief end of man? End is there referred to as a goal, a goal state. That's the way it's used here. But there is another meaning of end that I think can apply. And we all know what that is. The end, right? The end of a movie, the end of a book, the end. It's the last part. It's You're closing it off. And that's true of faith, if you can believe it. Our salvation, our glorification will end our need for faith. Isn't that interesting? You won't have any faith in heaven. You won't need any faith in heaven. Why? And listen, it's a biblical argument. Of course it must be, or else you'd run me off here. (laughs) Hebrews 11.1 Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. In heaven, we will see God. He will no longer be invisible. And you know what? He will be visible to us as well as to the unbelievers. And so the senses come back into play. We will see God. Our senses will see God. What had been faith-based, what had been reason-based, what had been devoid of sense is now can be predicated on sense. We will be with God. We don't need faith at that point. God has used faith for the purposes that he intended it for to get us to him in heaven and then there's no longer any need for it. Philippians 2, 9-11 says this, Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So these unbelievers 
as well as we believers, are bowing the knee to Christ in heaven. We see Christ. When we stand in heaven in the presence of God, we will not need faith because we will have God himself. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for the fact that we can build our lives upon your word, that only your word stands Uh, Lord, uh, all else that we try to build our lives upon will fail us, whether it is our own intellect, whether it is a relationship that we have with uh, our wife or our father or our children, uh, whatever we try to build our lives around, Father, uh, all fail us. And that, again, is by your design. It is one of these many trials we spoke of here. They will grieve us for a time, but they will cause our faith in you to be purified. We ask you, Lord, to purify our faith, to uh, work in us uh, righteousness and holiness, that we would uh, long to uh, lay up treasure in heaven, uh, long to look forward to the praise and the honor and the glory that you will uh, bestow upon us. And in the meantime, Father, we pray that you would have us to endure trials, uh, not stoically, but Father, with Uh, the awareness that we should be experiencing inexpressible joy, even in the midst of our trials, we can do this. So we pray, pray, Father, that you would make that so. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.